Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23 and verse 24. One of the most memorable and important lessons that I learned in, in Bible college, I didn't learn in the classroom and I actually didn't pay tuition for it. They actually paid me because it was a lesson that I learned in the middle of the night uh, at, a, at a restaurant where people went after the bars closed down. It was a, it was a rough uh, place. And, and I, had the, I had the responsibility of bussing the tables and washing the dishes. And uh, 3 o'clock in the morning when you, you're washing the dishes, here's the lesson that I learned in 3 o'clock in the morning washing dishes in Bible college that stuck with me all my life. And that God is real. And he's present, even in the washing of the dishes. God is real, and he's present. I wasn't the first uh, person uh, to learn this. Uh, years and years and years ago, toward the end of the 15th century, there was a fella named Herman. His name was Nicholas Herman. And uh, he... he worked in a Christian community, and his job there was to, pretty much his main job was to do the dishes. Uh, but he had a deep level of godliness about him, and everybody who knew him knew that. And so sometimes they would have conversations with him, and one of his friends had some letters from him and some notes from his conversations, and after he died, he put them together in a little book. Uh, they knew him there in the Christian community that he worked in as Brother Lawrence. And the little book that was published after his death, published posthumously, was, was called uh, Practicing the Presence of God. And the little book, Practicing the Presence of God, sold more books than any other Christian book ever. It's the best-selling book in the world right beside, behind the Bible. In it, he talks about the powerful thing that happens when people put their minds on the idea that the Bible teaches that God is always present everywhere. The 15th century English reformers had a Latin phrase. Have you heard the Latin phrase, carpe diem? Seize the day. Well, their phrase, the, the phrase they used was coram deo. And the idea is, Living before the face of God, before God or before the face of God. It's their idea, and they put it in this little Latin uh, uh, phrase. Live before the face of God. Something remarkable happens when we are conscious that God is present and that everything we do, we do in his presence before his face. Now, now, Bible teachers and, and Christian theologians have said these things about God, that he's uh, transcendent. In other words, he's other. He's bigger than you are. He's smarter than you are. He's different than you are. He's far away. That's true. And then they all, the, the Bible also teaches that he's imminent, which means that he's near at hand. And so sometimes when you read the Bible and you read about God, you read about how big God is and how different God is and how far away God is and how vast God is. But sometimes when you read the Bible, you read about how intimate, how close, and how personable uh, God is. 
when we read about attributes of God or what God is like. And our series is uh, Knowing God by Heart. So we don't want to just know about God, but we want to know about God and how He deals with you and I. And so we want to know which of His, communi- his attributes of God or things that God is like are things that He confers to some degree to us and which of those things He doesn't confer. They're just Him alone. For instance, uh, uh, what they call communicable, I think I mentioned this last week, and incommun- in- incommunicable attributes of God. For instance, God is love, and he can make us more loving. But he's also immutable, which means he never changes. And we'll talk about that. But you and I will always have changes. So that's not a communicable attribute of God. It's a, he alone has that attribute. And one of the most fascinating and most powerful and most interesting of the attributes of God is this attribute that he's everywhere present all the time. At the same time, always, everywhere, present. God is omnipresent. And the thing that I want to emphasize today in my message isn't just that he's omnipresent as if that's some impersonal thing that has nothing to do with you. But what does that have to do with you? God's presence in your life. Coram Deo. Living with in, in, with in mind that you're living before the face of God. Somebody said it like this. Living for an audience of one. Or like being conscious that God is always with you. That he's always present. That he's always weighing. Always evaluating. Always encouraging. Always helping. So uh, Brother Lawrence wrote it like this. He does not ask much of us, merely a thought from him from time to time, or a, a little act of adoration, or sometimes we ask for his grace, or sometimes we offer him our sufferings, and other times we thank him for his graces, and past and present graces that he's bestowed upon you in the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can, to lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. At least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not always cry out loudly because he's nearer to us than we think. We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall also think of him often. And for our heart will be with, our heart will be with what we treasure. What he was saying is that something powerful happens to us when we live with this consciousness that God is present in our lives. Now, and we know that God is omnipresent. In other words, the scriptures teach uh, the general presence of God everywhere. But often we say things like, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Why do we say that? If he's always everywhere present. If we do, we say that, and it's not inappropriate. Those, that language comes out of the Bible. So there's a sense in which, of course, there's this general presence of God where he's always present everywhere all the time. Let me give you an example of that from a message that Paul preached on Mars Hill. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17. And here's what Paul said in Acts chapter 17 to those who, who didn't know him. He said this, uh, you know, you're, he, he was telling me, you're aware that somebody made the world around you. Look around, somebody created this. It didn't just happen. So all pagans believe there's a creator of some kind, almost all of them. He said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is it, by the way, when Paul is gesturing here to a bunch of temples made with hands, when he's saying this. He said he doesn't dwell in these temples that are made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. In him we live and move and have our being, he's going to say. He gives life and breath and everything. And he says he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth. He's determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope and find him, though he is not far from each of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, Paul was saying, the, create, the God that created the world that you see is omnipresent, among other things. He's omnipresent. He said a bunch of other things there too. He's all powerful and self-sufficient. But nonetheless, he said he's present everywhere. So there's that general presence of God. And then there's what the Puritans called the cultivated presence of God. And that's the idea there in James. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Even though he's present, you know, there are times when you have a sense of his presence because you cultivated a sense of his presence because you created. You may have done that to some degree in coming to worship today and knowing that the worship team and the band and so forth had prepared and worked and labored and prayed long ahead of time so that they could sing these songs and play these songs with excellence to bring you a sense of the presence of God. And though God is present in this building on Tuesday afternoon when nobody else is here, He's present in a special way when we have cultivated a sense of his presence. Now, there's something else that the Puritans talked about, and often Christians talk about what is called the manifest presence of God. So there's the general presence of God that we know that God is always present everywhere. There's the cultivated presence of God when we seek God. There's the manifest presence of God, and this is spoken of throughout the Bible, where God chooses to display himself, to manifest himself. And that's one of the reasons why church going is important and why the local church is important. Because the scriptures are really clear that they teach that throughout time, God has always had a way to assemble his people. And it's where he assembled his people that he especially manifests his glory or his presence or his power. And if God is going to especially manifest himself, his glory, his presence, his power, his ability to work in you, to change you and transform you, I think I would want to be there in that assembly. And that's why it's important that God's people assemble every week on the Lord's Day that the Christian church has set aside, set apart to worship him. That's a matter of, of the most important obedience that we shouldn't be casual about because God manifests. He said he manifests himself there. Just so like he manifested himself walking in the garden, And he manifested himself and his glory shows up in the tabernacle. And he manifests himself and his glory shows up in the temple. And he manifests himself and his glory shows up in the person of Jesus and at the baptism of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus and the life and ministry of Jesus. He said that that we, meaning us collectively together, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit, in the fullest sense, is not the individual Christian. it's It's the gathered Christians. It's the community of the redeemed. It's church. When church gathers, it's not unimportant. It's super important. Now, let me give you some reasons this morning. Seven, if I move quickly enough, seven reasons to cultivate a vivid, continual awareness of the presence of God. What happens when we live before the face of God? Coram Deo. We, we're conscious and thoughtful that God is present. And we live with an audience of one. Some things happen. First of all, it changes the way that we understand our relationship with God. It changes how we understand our relationship with God. And for this, I, I want you to turn to Psalm 16. Just this one example. And today's message will have a number of passages of Scripture, not just a single one. So you can decide how many times you want to turn, or if you just want to listen and make notes and go back and study more. Here's what... Psalm 16 says, says, I've set the Lord, this is, I'm I'm in verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul in in Sheol, nor will you allow your, your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
The way God wants us to understand the Christian life is that the, the satisfaction and the, and the joy and the dynamic and the fulfillment of the Christian life come from what? Come from a sense of the presence of the Lord. They come from the presence of the Lord and our sense or enjoyment, our experience of the presence of the Lord. Now, let me give you some Bible examples of this. Like Adam and Eve, they're walking in the garden. What was the highlight of their day? In the cool of the day, when the wind blew the trees, Jesus, or a pre-incarnate form of a Christophany, a, a theophany, God in a person, walks with them in the garden. And what happens, remember, when they sin in chapter 3 and verse 8, they sin, and after they sin, they hide. And God comes looking for them. The essence of their spiritual life, the life of God in the soul of man, is that they had, like, they had fellowship with him. They talked with him. He listened to them. They listened to him. And they had fellowship. They had a relationship. And, and in, in the presence of God. David is an example, and I gave the example, I, I put in our notes there, Psalm 139. And this is one you do want to see. Psalm 139 is, is not just a clear statement in the Bible about omnipresence, but it's a clear statement in the Bible about omnipresence as it relates to you and I, people. And listen to it. This is chapter 139 and verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall fall on me, well, then even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. This is a beautiful, poetic personal reference to the fact that you're never going to go anywhere that God isn't there and conscious of who you are and what you're thinking and what you're doing and your fears and your desires and your uh, uh, circumstances in life. And, and, and this is the one thing that's true about God's omnipresence. It's like, it's a good thing, right? But like if you're doing something really bad, well, it doesn't feel like a good thing then, does it? We'll get to that a little bit later. Nonetheless, It'll change the way that you think about your relationship with God when you prioritize this idea of living before the face of God. So this was David saying this. Jacob, do you remember the story with Jacob in the Bible? And Jacob is a guy with a lot of rough edges about him. He's, he's not morally really altogether sound. He's not terribly honest. He's sort of deceitful. And then he's done these deceitful things and he's run out of town and he's running from his brother because his brother's a trained killer guy. And, and he's, he, so he wants to get away from his brother. Remember the story. He stops on the road he, at nighttime and he puts his head on a rock for a pillow and he has a dream. And in the morning when he wakes up, the dream is from God. That, you know, remember the, 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 the I am climbing Jacob's ladder dream, right? He has a dream, but when he wakes up in the morning, he says this, this beautiful phrase, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place. And I didn't know it. So you might think you go a lot of places where God doesn't go, but you'd be wrong. He's in church. He's in the bar. Yeah, he's there. He sees and weighs and evaluates everything. He knows every lonely heart pulled up to the bar on a Saturday night. He understands the guilt that weighs that person down or the hurt or the pain or the sorrow or the loneliness or whatever it is. He's present there. And Jacob says, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place. And I knew it not. Now, obviously, in the bar, that's not the cultivated presence of God. That may not be the manifest presence of God. God is there. So Jacob says, I didn't see the presence of the Lord. Then there was this matter with Elijah. These are just a couple of examples, and I'll move on. But 
There was Elijah, and he had the showdown on Carmel. Remember that? There was this uh, fire that came down from heaven. He had the conflict with the prophets of Baal, and God sent fire from heaven. I'm kind of jumping through a really great story really fast. And then he kind of runs away because Jezebel threatens him. And then he's going to meet with God, and he's out in the wilderness. And, and the scriptures talk about this in 1 Kings 19. It's a very interesting passage. You know, you've got, you've got an earthquake and wind and all of that, and God is in a still, small voice. What am, I, what am I getting at with all these examples and these illustrations? What I'm getting at is that the, the, the best way to describe or understand the Christian life is to understand it as the experience of the presence of God. He communicates in our soul, in our heart. He listens and speaks to us, and it should be seen as relationship. It changes the way we look at our Christian life when we live corn deo, in the before the face of God. Sometimes the Bible calls that abiding in Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send your spirit. I want you to abide in me. And the spirit indwells the believers. It's in John 14. Maybe the phrase walking in the spirit is similar to that or walking with God. And people, men and women that knew God, well, often it says they walked with God. They, had, they, 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 they stayed in relationship with him. Here's the idea. The idea is that we cultivate this vivid and uh, real sense, awareness of the presence of God. If you want to... Experience the Christian life the way it was supposed to be experienced. Then you want to cultivate every day, moment by moment, continually, this keen sense that God is here. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes it's called by the renewing of the mind or transforming the mind or taking captive every thought. Richard Owen Roberts is a revival historian. And in an interesting article about revival, he says that there's all kinds of revival terminology, beautiful revival terminology, fire and awakening and revival and stirring and all kinds of revival terminology. But after years of study, after giving his lifetime to study the history of revival and the biblical matter about revival, if you hear him speak, he will say, revival is nothing more, nothing less than the manifest presence of God. It's just God showing up. So if you want to have a stirring and all that comes with that awakening, then cultivate the sense of the presence of God. Sometimes we think of the Christian life like, well, we're supposed to get a lot of things done. And if you're kind of left brain, if you're kind of an organized type of person, hang on to your chair for a minute. Because sometimes that's what we do. We got, we got a kind of a getting things done God. As if the untiring God of the universe needs us to get a lot of stuff done for him. The one who spoke all of the world and all of creation into existence in six days and rested on the seventh day as an example to us, we feel like we're going to impress him by getting a lot of stuff done. It reminds me a little bit of when you were a kid and you wanted that ant farm for Christmas. You know, you intellectual types, you wanted that ant farm. Remember the ant farm? It had two old pieces of uh, plastic and you could pour the sand in and then you could watch the ants. And how long did that interest you? Well, if you're really a nerd, maybe a week, you know. But most people, on three or four days in, you're done with the ant farm. You're like, you're not impressed with what they're doing because, I mean, it's an ant farm. It's a little, un, you know, unimportant community digging around in a bit of sand between two pieces of plastic. Well, we're, we're loved by God. We're cherished by God. He cares about us, but he doesn't need us any more than, than, than as if we were ants between two pieces of glass digging little meaningless holes. It's not the way God designed life to be, just to get things done for him. The essence of discipleship is following a person, being with a person, being like a person, falling in love with a person. That's what it's all about. And so our souls, they long for intimacy with God. And when we 
live before the face of God, when we think God is always present, like when you get up in the morning and you're conscious of the presence of God, you get in your car and you think, drive, like Jesus is in the passenger seat, turn on your TV at night, and you say, what do you want to watch, Jesus? You surf on the net, and you're like, well, this pleasing to the Lord, this use of time. Well, then you're, you're, you're quorum deo, you're before the face of God. That's the way your Christian life was designed to operate, to work. Isn't that powerful? It's, it's a little bit like the task-oriented person. Now, I don't want to do this too often, but Lois and I, we've talked about this before. She tends to be a little task-oriented. Last night during my favorite television program, she was doing a task. And I noticed that, Lois. I was going to help you as soon as the TV program was over, but it was a two-hour special. and <laughs> She seriously got this manly job done while I was watching When Calls the Heart. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, now you know who the romantic in our family is, right? So uh, she's like task-oriented. So with Lois and I, you know, I'll say, you know, I'll think, well, let's go get a cup of coffee, which has nothing to do with coffee at all. We have coffee makers at home, and coffee, it means let's look in each other's eyes and let's have a conversation. Let's sit in a little coffee, a little busy coffee shop somewhere, and let's talk about the kids and our past. Lois is task-oriented, so we can... You're going to see this. You'll catch this. Saturday, it all starts on Saturday. You'll, you'll learn all these things. So we get, in the, we get in the car and we go to the Starbucks and she goes, she tells me what she wants. I'm like, what? She says, just get me this. It's IT. I'm like, aren't we going in? No, just, just get it for me. I'm like, well, that's not the idea. We're, we're supposed to sit at a little table in the window and like maybe hold hands, look each other in the eye. She's like, I thought you said you wanted coffee. I go, well, that's not what I meant. I meant I wanted to talk, and she doesn't get that. She's, so this is her problem. Pray for her. And uh, she'll, we've been working on it for like 35 years. Uh, but some of you are like that with the Lord. It's like you're, you're task-oriented. Okay, I've done my devotions, God, because God is really, it's like to the angels, hey, come over here. Ken has read five chapters this morning. It's like, whoo, whoo, whoo. It's not impressed with that. It's not that big of a deal that you're getting stuff done for God. He's trying to ravish your heart with his love letter. That's what he's doing. He wants you to look him in the eye. He wants you to listen to him. It changes your relationship with God. It changes the way you look at sin altogether. John Ortberg has written well on this. He says, many Christians expend so much energy and worry trying not to sin and the goal is not to try to sin less. In all your efforts to keep from sinning, what are you focusing on then? You're focusing on sin. God wants you to focus on Him, to be with Him, to abide in Him, to relax and learn to enjoy His presence. Every day is a collection of moments, 86,400 seconds in a day. How many of them can you live with God? Start where you are and grow from there. God wants to be with you every moment. That's the way He put it. So it is, you know, when we try to capture a pleasure without God, it's not satisfying. Ultimately, it's like when you're thirsty drinking salt water and really soon you're thirsty again. It's uh, like a fish out of, the, out of water. Whatever pleasure it enjoys is temporary. And so it is. Satis- so, so pleasures that we seek without God, they're not satisfying. They're like drinking salt water. Pleasures that we seek without God, 
are not lasting. They're like being a fish out of water. So if you want joy and happiness and you want to defeat sin in your life, and the key to defeating sin is probably finding our satisfaction in God instead of other things, idolatry of other things, is an understanding here of the dynamic of consciously living in the presence of God. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. I can't do that. I can't sit around surrounded by, you know, Christian people, Christian music, and Christian books all day long, and nobody ever says anything rough to me. I'm not a pastor. I can't do that. But the people that have really probably guided us in this were people that had tremendous busyness in really rough, hard-edged, secular things. And they spoke of it. They wrote of it. They read, uh, read Elizabeth Elliot's uh, biography of Amy Carmichael, uh, A Chance to Die, telling about how she as a woman, ran this whole entire Christian community day and night, had these little children that they had adopted, large numbers of them, and ministered and wrote and organized and has written such rich, rich devotional material in the heat of India and the difficulty of all of that. It'll change the way you see relationship with God when you live before the face of God. It'll change the way you struggle with sin. It'll help uh, the way that you struggle with sin you know, and by the way, uh, remember David's moral failure. Here was David. Did he understand intimacy with God? Let's vote on this because you're drifting off on me, okay? How many of you would say David understood intimacy with God? Raise your hand. Sure he did. He's the guy that kind of wrote the book on that. So David lived in unbroken intimacy with God. Am I right? Are you sure? How about that night on the roof? When he's looking over at another man's wife. This is the scary part. When you think about it, sometimes here's what we think. We think, I know how this works. I go to camp, and I have this experience with God. Well, yeah, that's good. But, what's, but there's, that's one day a year or one week a year. Then there's another, there's another 50-some weeks to go, 51 weeks to go. What are you going to do when you're not at camp? There's Easter and Christmas, but there are 363 other days of the year. What are you going to do then? There are those times that you can get away to the, out to the ocean to the mountains, but most of us don't live near the ocean or the mountains. We live near the Detroit River. That's inspiring, but, you know, it's not the Pacific. Let's be honest. You know, we like it. It's our water, right? But it's not, you can't even get to Lake Michigan. You got to, it's three hours over there. Takes a little time. You got to have a place where you get up in the morning and that's your holy place with God. In your kitchen, in the cab of your truck, in your car when you're commuting to work, in a little corner of your otherwise pretty modest house that you set aside a place where you meet with God in the quietness of your own bed at night. We have to learn day by day, continually, moment by moment to stay in fellowship with God because temptations are not going to just come on Christmas and Easter. They're not just going to come the week that we got back from camp. They're going to come flying at us all the time. And it's important that we have this robust and continuous sense of the presence of God for every single night that we might be tempted to look over out across into the neighbor's uh, place. It's a serious matter, you can see. And that's why David said it, created me a clean heart. He said in the penitent psalm, after this incident of sin, created me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence, he said. He understood that was important. Acts 3.19 says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Get it? So this is the language that the Bible uses. If you want to be, uh, you want to have a strong fight against sin, fight sin with a sense of the presence of God. 
You want to understand the Christian life, understand the Christian life as fellowship in the presence of God. And so it is with our troubles. We're, we're all inundated with various troubles. We might be even more this week. And, you know, obviously we've had funerals and we've had illnesses and we've had tragedies and difficulties. Even in our relatively small group of people that are part of the church, troubles are common but when trouble comes, the Bible says in Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Talk to any seasoned Christian, and they will tell you that they had a sense of the manifest presence of the Lord when they got the grace of God to take them through some difficult trouble. When people misunderstand you or attack you, listen to Psalm 31, 19, and 20. How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret of your presence from the plots of men and keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. The secret place of the Most High that Psalm 91 talks about is the presence of the Lord. It's the sense of nearness of the presence of the Lord. And that's why even when Satan or demons attack your soul, Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of, of the Almighty. In other words, if you want to have spiritual uh, safety, the presence of the Lord. If you want to be, uh, if people's voices are bothering you with whatever it is that they're attacking you about or discouraging you about, don't listen to the people's voices. Listen to God's voice. It'll change the way you see your troubles. It'll change the way you see people. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, but 2 Corinthians 5.16, Paul is in this kind of riff, if you will, where he's just writing about the way his life changes when he sees everything in the light of God's redemptive program and the cross. And in that little uh, flourish there, he says, and from now on, I don't see anyone, any man according to the flesh. In other words, I don't regard anyone from a merely human point of view. One of my favorite phrases in Scripture when I'm dealing with people is to think of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16. Paul says, because I look at the world through the eyes of God and the cross, I don't see anyone from a merely human point of view. Christians should be sharper than that. They should see deeper than that. They should see what God is doing and what God can do. I'm reading an amazing biography right now called Living Streams, and it's the biography of uh, Stuart Briscoe, who was born in England, and he's a tremendously fruitful pastor. And he's an extremely good writer. And so yesterday I'm indulging in a long passage there in this book, and I noticed that he's preaching in a church, a Baptist church in, in Ireland, I believe. And when he gets done, a little lady walks up to him, and she says, you need to be our pastor because you love prostitutes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, okay. She says, yes, you do, don't you? I mean, I can tell you love prostitutes. You need to be our pastor. He says, I didn't know how to answer that question. How does a pastor answer the question, do you love prostitutes? So he says, you know, like, I just listened. Hopefully she would say more. And then she went on. And she says, you're not the kind of person that would just climb up into the pulpit and just preach to the godly. You're the kind of person that would go out on the street and you would give the gospel to the ones who need it the most. I work with prostitutes since I came back from the mission field. She'd been on the mission field for years. She and her sister, her sister died. She had to come back from the mission field. So she went downtown in the roughest part of town there and she worked with prostitutes. She said, I want you to be our pastor because I bring prostitutes to church and the people don't like it when I bring prostitutes to church. But if you were our pastor, her, I think you would understand. And then she said her name, and he recognized that it was her dad that he was named after, Stuart. He was named after her, her dad. Kind of interesting. 
Stuart Briscoe, this woman who loved lost people who were broken and lost, recognized in his message, in his demeanor, in his manner, that he was a person who saw people different than most people see people. And the closer that we get to God, the more that we see people the way God sees people. Number five, it will change the way you see your routines, the mundane, regular things of life. You get up in the morning and Psalm 18 says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I will be glad in it. I don't have to raise the curtain and look if it's raining or not. No, I'm rejoicing before I see whether it's raining or not. I'm on task before I see if it's hot or cold or humid or cool or nice or not nice. Because I'm a Christian. Whatever I, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it to the glory of God. It changes the way I see my mundane routines. I see that even mundane, regular, daily things. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, labor to lead a quiet life. Work with your hands a common and a quiet life. And so again, as I mentioned before, can I suggest to you, this is just a practical piece of this, that tomorrow morning or like later today or tomorrow when you get up and you start your regular routine, as quickly as you can, consciously think, God is present. Think, God is present. Let God's presence govern everything you do, everything you say. You'll fail. Try again the next day. Living with a sense, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Talk with an awareness that God is weighing every word that you say. When you feel fearful, turn that into a prayer. When you feel tempted, turn that into a prayer. In your chair, in your routine, again, in that window, in the shower, in your bed, in your bedroom, at the kitchen table, while you're doing the dishes. John Bailey has written a devotional book that I have beside my bed. And Lois and I will often read this. It's a book of beautiful prayers. Here's one of them. It's called A Diary of Private Prayer. Give me, O God, this day a strong and vivid sense that you are by my side. Give me, O God, this day a strong and vivid sense that you are by my side. In the multitude or in the solitude, in business or in leisure, in my down-sitting, in my uprising, may I ever be aware of your accompanying presence. By thy grace, O God, I will go nowhere this day where you cannot come. I will not allow any companionship that would rob me of yours. By your grace, I will let no thought enter my heart, but might hinder my communication with you. Or let any word come from my mouth that's not meant for your ear. So shall my courage be firm and my heart be at peace. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know you're not going to do this on your own. It will have to be God's empowering presence in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And His indwelling Spirit will empower you. But this is the, this is the way to think as a believer. It's the way to think. God is presence. And then what else will happen? Two more things. They kind of go together. Your, love, your understanding of the love of God will increase. And this goes back to Psalm 139, which we already read. What was Psalm 139? It's, it's like... No matter if you go to heaven or hell or, or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, I'll be there, right? That's the beautiful poetic language that he uses. But this week I discovered something as I was studying. I realized there's another place in the Bible that uses the almost exact same images and almost the exact same language and says almost the exact opposite thing. You want to see it? Or listen, if you will, or, or turn to Amos. In Amos, in chapter 9, this is, a prof- this is God's warning to people who are disobedient and who are stubborn, who said, for whatever reason, I'm not going to listen to God and I'm not going to follow God. So in other words, when a person is devout or fears God or follows God like David, if, if a person like David, who at the end of Psalm 139, he goes, search me, 
and know my thoughts. Try me, know my thoughts. Search me, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. God, you're, I'm giving you a freedom to look through my life because I'm a God-fearing person. Then God says, wherever you are, I'm there. And the implication is, and I'm there to protect you. And I'm there to love you. And I'm there to bless you. I'm there to forgive you. But, but the opposite of that is this justice of God, this wrath of God, which is a profoundly common theme in the Bible too. For a person who doesn't fear God, doesn't follow God, gives God a sideways glance from time to time, doesn't really know God, doesn't really serve God, doesn't really fear God, doesn't flee to the cross for salvation or forgiveness, doesn't regard Jesus as his Savior and Lord and King, then judgment is certainly going to come on that person. The Bible is really clear about that. Amos talks about that, uses the same language. And listen to Amos in chapter 9. Verse 2, though they dig into hell, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it will slay them. And I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. It's probably a passage Joel Olstein isn't going to preach from next week. Psalm 139, what does it say? It says, if you are under the protective covering of Christ and salvation, and you fear God, then no matter where you go, I'll be there to protect you and love you. But if you refuse that, no matter where you go, I will find you and bring you to the judgment that you deserve. Today, some of you are not under God's protection. You're not sure, and I would just not let the sun go down. I wouldn't, let, I wouldn't go to lunch before I took care of that. Remember Jacob. Remember he wasn't aware of the presence of the Lord? Remember that? I told you this story earlier. Like, surely the Lord was in his place, and I didn't know it. It reminds me of another place in the Bible where there was a guy named Samson who was used to God's power, used to God's blessing, used to God's strength and mercy's grace in his life. He was a judge, but he was disobedient to God. And in his continual disobedience, he remember how the story goes, he, he was used to having the power of God on his life. But finally, after he was disobedient to God repeatedly, he lost the sense of the presence of the Lord. But he still thought that he had it. So there you have it. And some people, you may be here today, you may think, I'm just in this alone. No, you're not in this alone. God is with you to bless you and help you. Others may think, well, I don't need anybody. Yeah, you, you need anybody because God is against you. He's, a, he's very much against you. Unless you're in his son, Jesus Christ. And then God is for you. So I go away from evangel every once in a while. I did some graduate work at Moody Graduate School. I went to undergrad and grad at Moody Graduate School. One of the places I have gone and had this sense of the presence of the Lord. You know, just where people have, for years, have served the Lord. And sometimes I'll go to my old room. I got, I got to go to my old room that I was back in 1977. I got to go to my old room, and, you know, years and years later. And I knelt down, and I thank God for being so good to me. I was just a kid, and I went there to try to prepare to serve the Lord, and I got down on my knees. Thank you that you were present in my life in this place. He was. He was so present in my life. He taught me so much. 
I had a sense of the presence of the Lord. I went back years later, did the graduate work and stayed in the same place. I had a sense of the presence of the Lord. Every once in a while, I'd go to a place like Lake Ann or Bear Cal, other places where God's people for years have set up outside these beautiful places out in the nature. And they have chapels and they have services and they dedicate themselves to that. And I'll go there and I get to speak sometimes and I'll, maybe when the kids are singing in the chapel, I'll go over and kneel by the lake and I'm like, God, I sense the presence of the Lord in this place. You've had that too, right? But the presence of the Lord, God manifests himself in a place because of the devotion of the people there and what he's done from the people and what they've given and done and how they serve and what they teach. I, I pack up my bags and I come back to our church. And on the way back, it occurs to me, so is evangel going to be one of those places where people can come and they sense the presence of the Lord? More often than, you know, a couple times a year, but week after week, they come here and in the singing, they sense the presence of the Lord. And in the preaching, they sense the presence of the Lord. And in the teaching, they sense the nearness of the Lord. And in the friendships with people who love God and serve God, they sense the presence of the Lord. Now, whose responsibility is that? Well, it's mine and it's yours. It's ours. God is everywhere present. And if we cultivate a sense of his presence, we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. And perhaps in ways that only he can measure, he'll pour himself out and manifest in himself. Why don't we ask him to do that? Why don't you ask him, God, help me be the kind of person this week that lives Coram Deo before the face of God and whatever that I do. Before we go home today, I'd like to encourage you to respond to this message in song. And then we'd like to ask Gary McGuire to come and close our service in prayer. Would you stand and we sing?